My subject this morning is the dividing line of human history. This morning I'm going to cover three different subjects. One on reconciliation. I'm going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount and how the cross is actually the dividing line of human history. So here is what most of Christians believe today. They believe that Jesus died for their sins and that he has forgiven them for all their past sins. And the message that they receive is one of now you can trust Jesus that when you die that you will have eternal life. And Oftentimes, they say, now, when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, they'll say, now, go and read your Bible. And most of them will recommend that you start with the New Testament. And, um, and then you, you will find out what God wants you to do. And then all you have to do is do it. Now, <clears throat> millions of Christians... That's how they started their Christian life. And millions of Christians have tried and tried and tried, but they have failed over and over and over again. It's really not knowing about the life of Christ. It's not understanding what it means to have Christ living in you. And so if they don't understand that, then they are caught between either the cold, dead, orthodox religion, or if they can find some sort of spine-tingling experience in a religious service. Uh, given the choice, a person who is truly wants to know God, wants to find out what God is, is and and uh, how he affects their lives, they're going to opt for the experience over orthodoxy. Others simply walk away. Some say that they can get more religion out of nature. And some say, I get more out of it if I just stay home and study my Bible. And so they try to grind out the Christian life on their own. Most Christians have somewhat of an understanding of salvation. They are familiar with the word forgiveness, but the Bible has much more to say about salvation than forgiveness. And one of the major biblical terms Expressing the finality of the sin issue is reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Bible says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Now, I want you to think for just a moment what the Bible says here. The Bible says that he was reconciling the world. He doesn't say that he was reconciling the Jews and the Christians. He says he was reconciling the world. 
and I mean the whole world. Now, many have asked me, but does that mean that someday the whole world will be saved? No, that's not what it means. Salvation is when a person receives Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They know him as the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. They've known about Jesus Christ going to the cross and, and paying the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so salvation is given on those conditions. The word reconciliation means that the barrier between God and man, which is sin, the wages of sin is death. So the barrier between God and man is sin, has been taken away. And that's what happened, remember when John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming down to the water, he said, look, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The Jews only understood the covering of sins, not the taking away of sin. And so here we have Christ taking away our sins. Therefore, the only thing that any man that any man will ever lose eternal life over is unbelief it'll never be over sin it'll be because of unbelief reconciliation has been accomplished by the whole world through Christ and the reason that God removed that barrier that sin issue is so that no matter where you live in this world Whosoever will can come to Christ by faith and become alive to Christ. In Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, all of our sins. That is the only way and the only reason anyone will ever be lost is simply because of unbelief. In John, in John 3.18, the Bible says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What does it mean to be condemned already? Well, the Bible says that he, he will remain dead. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions. We are dead in our sins. Is it because of sin? No. It's because of unbelief. God's work of reconciliation has always taken place. Already it has. It's the story of God searching for man. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, the Bible says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Verse 8, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, why we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Okay, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We are reconciled to him when we were God's enemies. Paul's argument is this. If the believer could clearly understand just how much God loved him as an enemy when he was an enemy, how much more is he going to love him once he becomes a child of God? Every one of us here are a child of God. God is saying that there is a place where every Christian, that every Christian can know that God loves them. Even though he himself feels worthless, useless, and forgotten. The Bible says if we just go to John 3.16, we'll have the picture. For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The cross is the dividing line of human history. Now I know that there's been a lot of confusion about a lot of scriptures in the Bible. There's a, a lot of talk about what happened before the cross, what happened after the cross. And so it causes us to really kind of look at the, the scripture and say, okay, what happened before and what did happen afterwards? And so if we look for what happened before, we're looking to Jesus. If we're looking, when we read the Bible, when we were looking... What happened after the cross, we're looking to Paul. And that's why you've heard me say that there are some, it's a movement now going around the world, red-letter Christians. They want to just believe in what Jesus said first. They want to anchor on what he said, believe what he said, follow what he said, and that gets them into trouble. Whenever you take that position, you're going to be in trouble. I believe one of the most misunderstood messages has been the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know that for years, the Sermon on the Mount has been sort of a golden standard. I've heard many, many sermons preached on it. And they, they sort of kind of have to dance around some of the things in, in the Sermon on the Mount. But they're saying that this should be our goal. We can't actually achieve everything. Or some theologians say, well, God didn't really mean, Jesus didn't really mean everything. And I'm saying, oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he meant everything. He meant everything. And so we have a little bit of confusion there. In Matthew 5, it's presented as an impossible standard. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible for anyone to follow and keep. It just doesn't happen that way. A lot of people have tried, and a lot of people have died trying. You can't do it. Now, why would Jesus give us counsel, tell us what we should do, when he knew all along we couldn't do it. That doesn't seem fair, does it? 
tells you this is what you should do, knowing that you can't do it. And so there's a lot of confusion. So we need to, we need to understand what Jesus was doing. When Jesus was delivering the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't for Christians. It wasn't for Christians at all. It was for the Jewish people. He was showing them that according to how they believe and what they do and how they follow it and all the sacrifices they make, he was showing them that they would be hopeless trying to do this. Absolutely hopeless if they attempted to follow that. And Jesus wanted them to know that something was coming. It was called a covenant. And Hebrews 9.15, the Bible says a new covenant would be coming. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is the one. He's the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Who promises us eternal life? Jesus Christ. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In that, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. So the new covenant would only be enforced when Jesus Christ died on the cross. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was put into effect without blood. So here you have it. According to Hebrews, death, not birth, brings a change of the covenant. So Jesus was projecting there's going to be a new covenant, something different, something that the Jewish people could not understand. It's coming, he said. The new covenant began at Calvary when Jesus shed his blood. It didn't start the day before. It didn't start the day after. It started the day that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. So it's his death. It's not his birth. Jesus, while he, while he walked on the face of this earth, he was under the law. And his audience was under the law. And Jesus meant what he said in Matthew 5. He was not speaking to the Christians. He was speaking to the Jewish people. He was talking to a generation, and they still feel the same way today, that they thought that they were okay simply because they were Jewish. Now, they thought that they were righteous because they had never committed literal murder. And so, <clears throat> to shake up this cold complacency, Jesus manifested, magnified, I should say, the, the inner heart of the law. 
and he amplified what the law really does. For example, in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is Jesus' amplification of that. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Rekha, is, uh, is unanswerable to the court, to the Sanhedrin's. And anyone who says that you're a fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now just think about that. Anybody who, if you call somebody a fool or an idiot, you are subject to the hell fire. Now, Jesus' amplification of the law here was for the Jewish people. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, the Bible says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Jesus' amplification was, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Really? Is that what Jesus meant? Or how about this one? In Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus' amplification of that but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? That would affect 53% of all Christians. Pretty powerful words. I challenge you to go and read the Sermon on the Mount for yourselves. My father, who became a Christian later in life, I don't know if he went to, a, went to church and heard a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, or I don't know if he was reading Matthew 5. Maybe it was a combination of both. Maybe he heard the sermon and then decided to read it for himself. He called me up and he said to me, Gary, he said, I'm, I'm deeply troubled. He said, I, I don't know what to do. My father was married three times and his third wife was married to her for, I think at that time was about 20, 21 years. He says, I, I, I don't know what to do. I've been, I've been looking at the Bible. I've been going to church. And he said, um, I don't know. He said, uh, Maybe I'm supposed to divorce Margaret. That was his wife. Maybe I'm supposed to divorce Margaret and then ask your mother if she would remarry me. I said, Dad, two wrongs don't make a right. I said to him, that's not what the Bible means. 
Now, he's excited about being a new Christian. And he says to me, but that's what the Bible says. But Dad, I said, that's not what it means. Jesus is not talking to you and I. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's trying to get a point across. I said, it's the same way that if you're if your eye, if your right eye is causing you to do some sin, uh, Dad, don't pluck it out. If your right hand is causing you some problems, please don't cut it off. It's really not worth it. It's not what Jesus meant. Meant. You will find that Jesus is talking to the Jewish people to get a point across. He told them that you're to give everyone, anyone who asks you for anything, you're to give it to them. He told them that if anybody comes up to you in the community of the Jews, of course, if anybody comes up to you and wants to borrow money, lend it to them. Don't ask questions, just lend it to them. Is that what we're supposed to do? He talked about being answerable to the Sanhedrin's. And he talked about going to your brother and reconcile with him before you offer your sacrifices. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that if you call anyone a fool, you stand in the judgment for hellfire. And then he said, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you're as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, you're God. So Jesus was telling, telling them, this is impossible for you to do. You are hopeless. And he prepared them. He made preparation. Jesus was the bridge. He was preparing them for a new covenant, a covenant of grace. No, these impossible teachings about the true spirit of the law were never, never what Jesus intended his disciples to teach as doctrines in the New Testament church. That's why they're not carried out. You can read the epistles and there's nothing in there about cutting off limbs, plucking out eyes. There is nothing in there for for you to compare yourselves with the Pharisees. We're not Jewish people. We don't have Pharisees. We're not obligated to the Sanhedrins. Jesus told them to sell everything and follow him. I don't think that God is asking us to put everything on Craigslist and then go follow him. <laughs> That's not the purpose of it. No, he says that, in fact, I, I can only imagine how many people have read Matthew. That's why when, when I was an evangelist and I would meet with the people that would come forward afterwards and I would say to them now, I said, when it comes to reading your Bible, read the epistles first. Read the epistles first. Don't read the Gospels first. Read the epistles first. 
and then go to the Gospels and you'll have a better understanding of the Gospel. Um, of course, I mean, that's my own personal belief, but... And then when, when we bring up Matthew 6, 14, and 15, it says that, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Father, your Heavenly Father, will also forgive you. Now, how many people have been plagued with that? Is that true? But if you do not forgive others, now this is Jesus talking it. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So your, your forgiveness is conditional according to this. It all depends on you. If you want forgiveness, you better clear the record with your, with your past. But that's not, that's not the gospel. Now we've heard what Jesus said before the cross to the Jewish people that were under the law. So why not take a look at what Paul said after the cross, talking to Christian believers that are under grace. Ephesians 4, 32. The Bible says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Past tense, you're already forgiven. That's the incentive for you to give, forgive, because you have already been forgiven. Forgiveness is a gift it's not a reward for you to come up with, go through the, your past, your, the whole history of your life, and figure out who you haven't forgiven. That's not it. In Colossians 3.13, the Bible says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord, past tense, has forgiven you. You and I have been forgiven. We live in a state of forgiveness. But most Christians have never been taught that. The Christian life, the Christian faith, is something that you live. The emphasis was always on what I should be doing for God and, and never on what God has already done for us. Do you know that the biggest issue in the, in the New Testament, as we go through the New Testament, when the Bible tells us that we should renew our minds, we should do that daily. What is renewing your mind to you? It's going over what Christ has already done for you. That's what the renewing of your mind is. It's going over what has already been provided for you, committed to you by God. God's new covenant message of grace announces that we are forgiven, not because we forgave others, but because the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, his shed blood, he, we received total forgiveness for all of our sins. And forgiveness is a gift from God. 
It's not a reward. Just like eternal life is a gift, it's not a reward. Christ is saying, if you want to be accepted, he was telling the Jewish people, if you want to, be, if you want to go that route, if you want to be accepted, uh, uh, accepted by God based on your own merits, the standard is perfection inwardly and outwardly. The spirit of the, that's why Jesus gave that amplification of the spirit of the law, inwardly and outwardly. In Galatians 3, 22 and 24, 23 and 24, it says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up against the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So here you have it. The law is our guardian. That's why the law is holy, just, and good. Because it leads you to Christ. And that's, Christ was preparing the Jewish people that you cannot, you, nobody has ever kept the law. Successfully, nobody has ever done it. No human being has ever done it. And so Christ was putting the emphasis, it can't be done. And then he said, here is the spirit of the law. You think one thing. You think that if you don't murder, but he says, I'm saying that you get angry at your brother. You're guilty of the judgment. Now, the Bible is very clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, the old is gone. Your old life is gone. It's over. It's done. So what's new? Well, you got a new heart. That's what God gave you, a new heart. you got a new spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have a new nature. It's not your nature to sin. When you sin, I mean, we can all sin, but when we do... It's so uncomfortable because we're going against our nature. It's just uncomfortable. Sometimes we have, to, we have to lie, we have to do this, we have to do that, just so we can get out from under the guilt that we have. No, sinning is not fun. Not when you're a Christian. It was before. I have to say it was before. But when I became a Christian, it wasn't fun anymore. Sin is never beneficial. Never is it beneficial. Then the Bible says we were transferred into Christ. And now Christ is transferred into us. He lives in us and through us. Ephesians 4.30. The Bible says... And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I don't know about you, but that's got to give you an awful lot of security knowing that when you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, he sealed you at that moment until he's going to come back again. And you think, well, that, uh, well when I first became a, a Christian, uh, I was excited for a while, but then I, then I kind of drifted away and everything else like that. 
Still sealed. Still sealed. Still sealed. Why? Because God said that he's not, he's not going to let anyone pluck you out of his hand. You're there. You're born again. You're born of God. Born of the Spirit. It's not your nature to drift. You can. But it's not beneficial. It's not good. It's not profitable. And so that's what the Christian life is when Christ is living in you. All of a sudden, it's not profitable anymore. All of a sudden, you get all these mixed emotions and mixed feelings and you, you begin to question what's going on in your head, what's going on with God and all this stuff. But you are safe and secure. He sealed you until he, he was coming back. Romans 5.17, it says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provisions of grace and of the gift of righteousness, righteousness is a gift, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What a marvelous scripture. Because of one man's death, you and I became alive to God. And God, he sealed us until he was going to send his son back again. With knowing that on this side of the cross, forgiveness and righteousness is given as a free gift. We can rejoice and live in a state of thankfulness. Whenever you are reading your Bible and it comes to the law, God wants you to use discernment. You know, there are so many people that jump the gun. They read something in the Bible and they don't understand exactly what they read, but they think that this is something that they should do and must do and should, and should do. And they really don't understand it yet. But whenever it comes to the law, God wants us to use discernment. What Jesus said about the law, what Jesus did to set us free from the law. When you have Christ living in you, there's no law that you need. Christ is going to direct you through the Holy Spirit and what is right and what is wrong. And every one of us know better. Every one of us. We are without excuse. And so we just need to depend upon Christ and what he has said that he would do to us. He would live his life through us. And he wants to live it through you because you're unique. You're special. There's nobody like you. Nobody like you on the face of this earth. And God's desire is to live through you, yeah, that unique you that you are. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for all that you are doing, all that you have done. And we're thankful, Lord, that this message on the Sermon of the Mount, we're thankful that it was given to your people and it reminds us of how fortunate we are to understand and know the gospel. 
We praise you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you for living your life in us through the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that we are partakers of your divine nature. We're thankful that you have made us into a new creation, although a lot of times we don't act like it, but we're thankful for it, Lord. We're thankful that you're there with us, in us, and through us. Bless us, help us to have a great day today, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.